The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 55 of the Asena Board Games. We're back from outer space. No, we're going to outer space today because we are going to talk about science games. This one is less of a mechanics-based episode than a theme-based episode, but we think it's interesting. We have a science teacher among us and a group of assorted nerds, and we like this kind of stuff a lot better than sports. <laughs> I have to get one thing out of the way. Mm -hmm. Science! Science! There we go. Yes. <laughs> It was bound to happen. Yeah, totally. So yeah, science. And just to lay things out, we are trying to do things that are closer to real science than science fiction. We want things that are more or less plausible. I think the interesting part of this episode is going to be like, these are games that took scientific concepts and said, but what if it was a board game? And we're going to evaluate their success or failure to that endeavor. Okay. Staying away from, like, extreme science fiction. All right. Although well, we do touch on it a bit, but that's okay. I'm sure our listeners will let us know if we go too far afield and they don't like our judgments. Excellent. Also, the one other thing that we're kind of excluding from this list is games about wildlife. There's certainly a lot of games out there, especially more recently about animal conservation and that kind of thing, things like Ark Nova and Baron Park and even Wingspan to some extent. So we're kind of leaving those in their own category, which you may hear coming soon. But this is mostly going to be about the, the harder sciences. Oddly enough, Frank doesn't start this one. I'm going to kick us off with a game that is not themed around science. It, in fact, isn't themed around anything at all. It was originally played with just a deck of cards. But it is a good exploration of the scientific method in play. This is Eleusis, which was designed by Robert Abbott in 1956, published in Scientific American. There have been boxed versions by a group called DTV and several other publishers. One person who is in the original rules referred to as like God or nature or, you know, the person who, who determines how the world works. Basically, there's an array of cards just kind of laid out, regular 52-card poker deck. And the god figure chooses a rule what cards can be chosen, how card selection should progress. So a very simple rule is alternate selecting red cards and black cards. He doesn't tell anyone that rule, but basically the players will sort of alternate indicating a card, indicating another card. No, that's wrong. Okay. Indicate a card, indicate another card. That's right. Oh, okay. And trying to deduce what the rule is. This has been reapplied and refactored in a bunch of different ways. There was one called Zendo, which uses the little ice house pyramids. There's another one called Codebreaker, and Genius Rules is another one, but basically the, the concept is the same. Basically, you're just trying to conduct experiments to see if you can figure out what the underlying rule is. And of course, you can do insanely complicated rules, you know, like consecutive cards need to add up to 13 and, you know, do various things that will make it really complicated and that will annoy the other players. But it's just kind of a neat concept where you are going through and, and using the scientific method 
to figure out what the rules are. I'm also thinking, just as I said that, there was a game called Black Box, which was another... Signed by Robert Abbott. Yeah, weird. <laughs> which is another similar one. It's basically, there are hidden marbles in this box, basically, and you're trying no, to... No, that was Eric Solomon. Oh, okay. But yeah, and you're basically firing rays into the black box. There's also a hex version of black box. It's quite nice. Okay. Wait, you're firing rays into the black box? And seeing, finding out where the particles are based on how the rays reflect or interact with the particles in the box. Does it actually come with like little lasers? No, no. No. no, no. Although there should be a Kickstarter for an enhanced version. Let's contact Restoration Games. I'm sure they'll do it. <laughs> well, they're doing crossbows and catapults. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, basically one player puts the quote unquote atoms on this little grid and the other players or player tries to basically say, all right, I'm shooting a ray across this angle. Does it come through? Does it deflect? Does it bounce? And yeah. Yeah. So more science logic stuff. Totally. Reminds me of in high school, my friends would functionally do this with like a a deck of cards, Mm -hmm. right? Like, except that I can't remember what we called the game. I'm sure we, some modification of this, Mm -hmm. right? But like, we would start with like a base game of like, hearts or something right and then add like nonsense rules to it right and you could only look at the rules when you got to write a rule down and it was like if you lost you got to write a rule down so they're very mm-hmm. sort of like the card game of calvin ball yes yeah. very much so. or flux for that matter or mal flux, yeah function is calvin ball right yeah i think it's very similar to mal I think. yeah okay interesting yep that was elusis by the legendary robert abbott So just so I get to do some early games, I lined up a whole bunch of stuff from the 70s. When ecology was a thing. Yeah, totally. And there were two companies that did a whole series of educational games. They were pitched at schools. In the case of this first one, Urban Systems, I believe, actually appeared in, you know, school ordering catalogs. You could pick it up. I tended to find copies at educational supply stores for urban systems and everything. And the first one I have is probably urban systems best game, which is called Smog. This is about management and how to keep your cities from air pollution. And when you look at the board, it's kind of, well, it's dull as heck. But what you get is a giant, elaborate series of circles representing decisions, usually binary decisions which leads you to other binary decisions. But then the board itself takes place on a big battleship-looking grid, which is like 15 by 15 or 14 by 14, which has both cities and smokestacks. The smokestacks have these elaborate little acrylic smoke plumes that lead away from them, depending on the wind direction. And then you have your cities that you're trying to protect from the smoke. And gradually, you know, the distance of the plume depends on how well you've been managing your factories and your air pollution. And so you're graded on just how much smog you're producing, as well as you know being able to keep and balance your city and factory growth. But the game itself is all about making these binary decisions and moving your chips on these paths. I'm looking at this game. It's very 70s. Oh, yeah, it's totally. <laughs> it's gray, orange, and mm-hmm. black. That's it. Well, even the font choice. I love the smog trail. Yeah, oh, the smog, smog trails, trails are, are awesome. fascinating. The game's actually pretty fascinating in terms of actually playing it because it's, you know, oh, wow, do I do this? Do I do this? If I do this, it'll let me do this later. And so the entire, you know, decision tree is laid out for you. 
There are event cards that screw with that, but yeah. Mm-hmm. You're making the factories that make the smog in this game. And the cities, yeah. And the cities, okay. All right, that's going to be a fascinating contrast to a game that's coming up later. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. I love that one of the spots on here is like promotion of electric cars, and this game was in 1970. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were electric cars then. And someday, people will be convinced of their value. Yeah. <laughs> Remember, Jason, this is the 1970s. People were still hopeful about the future. Uh. So, so, sorry. So what Brian just said, right next to the promotion of electric cars is a space that says, convince people the value of public transportation. <laughs> well, we live in Atlanta, so that's not going to happen. Oh, no. What? Public transportation? <laughs> I don't know what that even means. Gross. Yeah. Uh, that'll bring the poor people to our city. Undesirables. Yeah. yeah. I love the font choice on like the score sheets and some of the uh, event cards. Like It is screaming 70s. It is so groovy. <laughs> and yeah, Urban Systems did a lot of ecology-themed games. Population, how they grow. Their games are really interesting. Smog's the one that actually holds up fairly well in terms of play. The rest are tend to be rolling moves, so yeah, mm. whatever. But you love rolling moves, Frank. No, no, no. We love good <laughs> rolling moves. Yeah, population's an okay rolling move, but it's okay. Yeah, I do include a rolling move just for the board. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we are going to get to one. Next up would be Carolina Biological Supply. They're really known for two games, and they are actually a supply company. I was going to say, that that really sounds like they're providing, you know, pipettes and fruit flies. And, and you know, formaldehyde frogs, literally. Right. <laughs> when you got their catalog, it was mostly science stuff, and then they had two or three games in the back. Okay. This first one is surprising because it's a Darwin-ish evolution of species called Extinction, the game of ecology. Use dice to represent your populations of species on various spaces on a big old hex grid. And, of course, there'll be events that happen here. But, and a spinner. Oh, my God, because you need a spinner. (laughs) Sure. But basically, you're doing a few actions a turn to grow your populations, tailor them. The hexes are colored to what kind of things they will eat. And slowly, they may begin to evolve and change, you know, how they eat and survive. The game is also pretty vicious, since you can wipe out species that are nearby that just have far fewer numbers, So at the cost of some of your own numbers. Sure. So I'm going to raise a topic that I know Mike was, was anxious to discuss. Is this really, I mean, when the, as the species start to evolve, is it kind of random, or is it intelligent design where the players are choosing what, <laughs> what evolution happens? Good point. So in this case, you can raise natural barriers. And change, so it's more almost a god sim. Okay. But the dice tend to basically do what they do. (laughs) Yeah, like, it's a big problem with board games in that any board game that is designed around the theory of evolution tends to end up being really just intelligent design, because evolution is mostly just random and there isn't really a game to be had there. There's a simulation, definitely. But I think most tend to be more intelligent design because that actually involves players making decisions, and that's where the game space lives. Yeah. I think my favorite thing looking at this, though, it feels like it would play a lot like something like Dominant Species or, you know, a lot of those modern games that have, like, hey, here's a landscape and you put animals out onto it. Except because this was made in the 70s, they just didn't hire an artist. And so the board 
at first glance, it's just a bunch of colored hexes. I feel like if this game were made nowadays, like each one of those would have a beautiful picture of the landscape that it represents. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, also, you're doing the layout by hand. Remember, this is all paste, tape up, and then take a photograph of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, layout in the 70s was a lot simpler. <laughs> but no, it's actually it actually is a decent game. It holds up. It is very random because of the events, but it's a surprising game. Uh, and of course, it has a spinner. I mean... <laughs> But no, it's pretty thinky and kind of fun. I like how one of the spaces on the spinner is reproduce and change genes. Mm. Yeah, this determines what kind of turn you're going to have. Yeah. And what action you get to do. All right, everybody, change your genes. Which, is again, is kind of a little bit ahead of, I mean, way ahead of the time in a lot of thoughts. And the game actually does feel, for 1970, it's like, wow, that's clever. Hmm. So on the less clever would be their other big game, which is Blood Flow, which is a straight up roll and move. Basically, you play, well, blood cells. <laughs> I'm in. And your object is to basically move around on a giant map of the circulatory system to deliver nutrients and do missions. It's not, uh, it's more of a teaching game. You have to figure out where the thing is. So your blood does get choice. Ah. I watched that anime. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, that's an awesome anime. <laughs> but um, the charm of this is it is teaching. The charm of the game here is the board, which is amazing. It's a gigantic board showing a map of the human body circulatory system. And like just with all the nodes. Yeah. Weirdly detailed. <laughs> yeah, totally. And again, teaching game to show you where the various parts of the body are. Yeah. Huh. Your blood will go there. It's just kind of teaching you where the things are, how blood will flow, and the kinds of things that blood actually does for you. So this is mostly what we think of as an educational game, which is to say, not a very good game, but it teaches you stuff. Totally. Except it is kind of fun. I mean, Rescue's kind of young. And, you know, it is a roll and move. Mm-hmm. I mean, Brian, with a tagline like, players race to deliver vital oxygen to their capillary beds and then return safely to the lungs with carbon dioxide. How could you not be excited? I mean, that's action-packed right there. <laughs> yeah, Although, I now want a circulatory <clears throat> system adventure game where you play platelets, red blood cells, white blood cells, and you have to work together to keep the oxygen safe and get it to where it needs to go. I'm so in on this adventure game. Yeah, totally. so the platelets are the tanks. <laughs> and the white blood cells are the healers. <laughs> no, no, I want an interspace adventure game. Let's do nah, that. Okay. There was a video game called Microsurgeon for the Intellivision that had you like moving around a circulatory system and you had to knock out various ailments. I love it. I'm in. All right. All right, let's let's get our Kickstarter started. Okay. <laughs> you guys okay, work need, on that. First we need minis, and then we need an artist. <laughs> uh, wait, oh no, God. you got that backwards. <laughs> that's yeah. the that's the wrong direction, James. <laughs> I mean, I can draw a platelet. Come on, guys. <laughs> All right. Well, while you guys are working on that, I'm going to briefly talk about Primordial Soup, or Ursuppe, which was designed in 1997 by Doris Mathaus and Frank Nestle and published by Doris and Frank. They're the, a, a great pair that have done a lot of sort of classic German games. Primordial Soup involves you playing amoebas, and you are basically scattered around this little board you will get washed in random directions by the tides. Each turn, you have to feed on things, and you also have to poop, and you eat other 
Players poop is the best way I can describe this. You can't eat cubes of your own color. So you produce cubes of your own color, but you can only eat cubes of other people's colors. Yeah. Yeah. And when you die, you produce, you know. Yeah, you explode into a a bounty of of, uh, cubes (laughs) for everyone. Yeah, totally. Yeah. There is a little bit of the quote-unquote evolution slash intelligent design thing going on, because as you collect points, you can use them to buy genes that will let you sort of more aggressively attack or defend yourself better or control your movement. It's a fun game. I don't know how scientifically accurate or educational it is. There is one weird rule I'm curious about. So there is a radiation sunlight limit that basically species that are over mutated. Oh, that's right. You have like a certain number of mutation points. And yeah, I think, I guess the idea is that if you mutate too much, you will become too fragile and not be able to survive. Yeah, that's a weird model for world. Yeah, that feels more like a mechanism for like balance to make sure no individual gets too and to keep things cycling yeah yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. because like i'm trying to think of like what that would be within science Science. and like it's not really how cells work although you know looking at like how cells developed i mean the absorption of the mitochondria led to more complicated cells and there's a theory that like cells took in mitochondria from an exterior environment and then just like that was so beneficial they survive better but like maybe there's this thing where if they absorb too much they like lice and break open eh. all right i'm definitely gonna have to put together a director's cut edition which has all the actual science commentary <laughs> because i didn't understand any of that But yeah, I mean, Primordial Soup is one of those that I don't think is a lot of scientific rigor or anything around it. But I think possibly as a direct result of that, it holds up quite well as a game. Yeah, like this is, I think, a perfect example of a game that's like, hey, here's this vague scientific concept of cellular evolution. Mm -hmm. Let's make a game out of that. Yeah. And I think not always, but in most cases, the amount of fun gameplay in these games is inversely related to the amount of accurate science in them. But Primordial Soup's a good game. I have a contention for one that may break that. I mean, there are a couple that are yeah. able to combine both, but those are kind of the yeah, whole grail. I would say for the games that we've discussed so far, probably. Probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'd be fascinated to see how that plays out moving forward. Well, we'll keep an eye on that going forward. So that was Primordial Soup. Jason, what do you got for us? I mean, this is kind of what we would consider an old classic in terms of what we've been playing. Mm-hmm. And nobody's tired of talking about, you know, <laughs> pandemics, <laughs> but Boo. 2008's Pandemic by Matt Leacock, distributed by Z-Man Games. I imagine most people are fairly familiar with this. We've certainly talked about it before. But the idea here is four different diseases have broken out across the planet. You as the players are taking on different roles that are trying to discover the cures for all of these diseases before basically time runs out or uh, the pandemic becomes too bad, right? Um, It's pretty simple. You basically have four actions on your turn. You can move between cities. You can treat infected populations, which is basically removing one of those disease cubes that are being distributed from that city. You can discover the cure if you have enough of the right colored cards at a research station. And then the last thing, you could build a research station, which are necessary for finding a cure and can make it easier to travel around the board. It's one of the first cooperative board games I played. 
but it's also probably the one I think suffers the most from the quarterbacking problem, <laughs> at least in my experience. Yeah, I think that concept was coined. I think pandemic is what, what kind of started that because, you know, the whole idea that one person is telling everyone what to do and it becomes a solitaire game where everybody else is just following one player's rules. I think part of it is because all of the information – now, I take that back because your hand is private. But, like, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that there's really only – one right move to take on your turn and like once you find that one right move if anybody does anything less optimal than that you're not gonna win yeah yeah so let's talk about how how it works just in case anyone's not familiar right so the idea here is each round you take your four actions right usually getting quarterbacked by somebody else then you draw two cards from the draw pile those cards might have an epidemic card in it which is bad after you draw your cards there's an infection rate that starts at a certain value, increases every time you have an outbreak or every time you draw an epidemic card that tells you, hey, draw cards from the infection pile and it'll determine which cities are getting disease cubes, right? So as you progress through the game, that infection rate gets worse and worse. So you're putting out more and more of these disease cubes and things get worse because if you have a city that already has three disease cubes on it, if you're going to place a fourth one, Instead of placing that fourth one, you actually place a cube in each adjacent city instead, and that causes the infection rate to go up. So it's kind of cascades, and you can even have it where one outbreak causes another outbreak, which causes another outbreak, which is like, Mm -hmm. well, you're about to lose this game. Yeah. The other thing that I think was new to Pandemic that was uh, both innovative and hateful is the fact that when you start doing those outbreaks, you're not having Pandemic events in new cities. You take the cities that yeah. you've already got the cards for yeah. that already have diseases in them or have had disease in them, shuffle them and put them back on top of the deck and do it again. And that's the rude part. Yeah, I think that that's what made the game clever, right? Because mm-hmm. you're like, hey, these cities have already had a problem. They're much more likely to have a problem. If you, well, they are going to have a problem in the future. But it also helps you strategize a little bit because you're like, well, I know these cities have already been screwed before. Yep. So I need to make sure we've got that taken care of. It kind of sets up with each game, like, hey, these are the cities that are going to be your problem cities in in this particular run-through of Pandemic, and that is different every time. And because Mm -hmm. of the distance between those cities, it makes for a different game every time. Mm -hmm. And just from the science point of view, that does a really good job of demonstrating viral spread and outbreak. Mm -hmm. Just because you're treating something in Atlanta doesn't mean that it can't get to New York, because that New York card could come up before the next outbreak card, which means you've got spread. Mm -hmm. Once you cure the disease disease completely, it no longer spreads, which that's when it starts to get a little weird. Although I think some of the expansions started introducing like, haha, your cure disease has changed and mutated. mutated oh god yeah you no longer have the cure for it it's funny how like every time i have played this certain cities kind of take on a personality of their own because they become like you said the problem cities mm-hmm. you're like oh god new york again jeez stop it <laughs> but yeah i'd say it's a really good starting game for people to play a cooperative game they haven't played before because it's not incredibly complex from a mechanics perspective And once they've seen how a round plays out, it's pretty much the same thing over and over again in terms of they can get that pattern down very easily. That's when you run into... I think the reason we see the quarterbacking problem so much is because a lot of times this is a game that 
experienced players are teaching to lesser experienced players mm-hmm. and it's difficult to watch <laughs> when sometimes someone's making a suboptimal turn <laughs> how very yeah. dare you yeah. yes <laughs> i think for all of us maybe i'm speaking at a turn here but i think for all of us this has probably been replaced by all of the pandemic legacy games just because they're more interesting they kind of make the game have a lot more i don't know twists and turns and in some cases kind of turn the mechanic on its head. I wouldn't say it's been replaced. I mean, I love the Pandemic Legacy games, but they are, like most Legacy games, kind of, you know, one shot through the campaign and then done. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about, Brian? You're left with a perfectly good Pandemic <laughs> board after that. Uh, sure you are. Sure you are. Uh, no. 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 Uh, <laughs> I still think, even for all the hate we're giving to the quarterbacking problem, Pandemic is still an excellent entry game into boutique designer board games, right? Like, it's very easy to explain. The rules are very straightforward with someone who kind of understands it. There's a couple of complicated things, but it's mostly around like, hey, how you reset the deck and all that kind of stuff. And frankly, if you've played before, you can just handle that. And teaching people this game is very straightforward. People pick it up very quickly. Yeah, it's very innovative design and good for new players. There's a million variants of it that are either themed differently or just explore different work around the same mechanism, but it's a it's a classic for a reason. Yeah, I think they just released a Star Wars version of it. Uh, oh, okay. Gotta watch yeah. out for those space diseases. <laughs> I've got a World of Warcraft one that is, instead of diseases, it's undead. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. I'm interested in giving that a try because all the guys have powers and presumably it's, like I've heard reviews it's pretty good. So huh. Fascinating. Yeah, you've got your obligatory Cthulhu version yeah. of the fall of Rome and, you know, floods in the Netherlands. Isn't there one that's like on the Spanish flu, I think, or something? There's one really... Oh, that's out Iberia. Out. Yeah. Just I don't know if wall. it's about the Spanish flu particularly. I just assumed. No, the Spanish flu isn't very Spanish, actually. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, Iberia is malaria, typhus, yellow fever, and cholera. All the favorites. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> the classics. Yeah. Yeah, there's like infinite expansions to this game. Oh, and apparently in that one, each of the diseases has a special power to better reflect how it spreads. So that's lovely. <laughs> Cute. Yeah, I'm sure that's nothing but fun. <laughs> <laughs> this might be too soon, but are we going to see one for uh, nope. uh, COVID? Nope. Uh, uh, no, we we will not specifically never. <laughs> Because of the way the human mind works. But but Joe... And if they, even if they made one, even if they made one, no one would buy it. Here you go, Joe. Here's what I'm going to say. When the COVID pandemic ends, they'll make one. <laughs> Actually, it has been shown that in popular media in the past, during outbreaks like that, that had such a large emotional effect on the population, they don't make media surrounding it, and I think that includes board games. I believe right? like that. If you look back at like the Spanish flu, it was at a time where like movies and books could have been captured about it really reasonably, and there are like none. There's like two, and those are both like historical treaties. Huh. And like it is commonly thought that people are just hyper uninterested in something like that. Yes, I've lived through that. I don't want to play a game about it. <laughs> yeah, so I can exactly. say yeah, 100%. In the 2070s 100%. or so, maybe we'll see the COVID stuff if any. Yeah, yeah I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll never make a game about it. And if they make a game about it, it'll be so long from now that we're not the audience yeah, it'll because be a, we'll all be dead. Yeah, it'll be a historic curiosity. Right. All right. So that was Pandemic. Now, a game that really terrifies me. Let's talk about another very simple, straightforward <laughs> game that's very welcoming to new players. Obviously, everyone on this show knows that I'm talking about High Frontier by 
Sierra Madre games designed by Philip Eklund. And I kid, because High Frontier is like one of the most complicated board games I've ever seen. Only I think only surpassed by the pasta water uh, <laughs> level of Oh yeah, uh, campaign for North exactly. Africa. Yeah. So in High Frontier, you are playing a corporation that is heading out into the stars. Well, you're playing a corporation that eventually wants to head out into the stars. You start with a specific either country, nationality, or company, and that gives you some initial powers and a little bit of initial information. And then over the course of the game, you will draft ship components and then launch yourself into space and travel to various interstellar objects, which include comets and asteroids and planets, the moons of Jupiter, Mars, you can land on Mars, all that kind of fun stuff. Go all the way out to Pluto. Great fun. And why this game terrifies Brian (laughs) is this game tries to be very accurate about the mechanics of getting places. All of the stuff that you have is in Leo, which is low Earth orbit. And so the game kind of is not super concerned about getting off of Earth, right? Because that's really hard, frankly. So, hey, we have a space elevator. Everything's up to Leo. It's great. And then you put together a ship and you launch it out. And ships all have a amount of thrust, which is a total number of burns you can do in a turn. But every burn costs fuel. So you have to decide how much fuel you put onto your ship. And fuel also affects your total weight, which can potentially reduce your total thrust. Because that's the way space works. And, like, physics and stuff. And ultimately, the core game is really... It's a very Euro game about getting to places and get points, right? Get, uh, like, colonies out there and uh, start generating additional points from these external entities. The game also comes with a couple of simplified versions. Space Diamonds, which is very much intended for a younger audience, right? It removes... 90% of the rules and just kind of covers the weight ratios and thrust and stuff like that. It's a simple question of weight ratios. There you go, Brian. (laughs) And then there's a race for glory, which is an introductory playthrough that removes about half of the rules. You don't need to worry about radiation and a couple of the other like really complicated rules. And I love this game. I think it's a great game. Utterly fascinating. It's utterly fascinating. Have you in fact played it? Yeah, Joe and I have played it one time. Yeah. I've played it. To completion. And I've played it to completion. To completion. Wow. Yeah. Dear listeners, as Joe is describing this game, I beg you to go look at what inevitably I assume Brian will put up in the uh Oh yes, the there will be section. pictures. Have a picture <laughs> of the actual playboard. <laughs> yeah, I mean this is a thing. The way I'm describing it, you're like, oh that sounds great. I'm in. You need to look <laughs> at the map. If you look at the map and that causes you to run screaming from every room in the universe, then you have your answer. It is not a visually welcoming game. <laughs> no. Yeah, the amazing thing about the map is it represents the energy and burn points more than it is. So it's actually a map and a fairly accurate map of the math involved in getting from place to place in the solar system on minimal amounts of fuel. There's a certain percentage of our listeners who are like, a map of the math? I'm in. And everyone else is like, eh. <laughs> Yeah. Which very much limits, you know, your burn points, how much you can move. And before you actually launch a mission, 
you have to sit down and work out the mission, work out the parameters, you know, figure out how much fuel you actually need to carry, et cetera. And even when you, of course, successfully launch a mission, if you're landing on a planet or something with an atmosphere, you're rolling the die to see if you don't just burn. Crash into it. Okay, I'm out. I'm out. Me and Brian are out. (laughs) Yeah, there's a couple of different, like, hazards in the game, right? Radiation and atmospheric landing can be one. And when you do that, you roll a d6. And if you roll a 1, you involuntarily decommission a part of your ship. Because space is trying to kill you at all times. There are radiation points on the board where you're kind of traveling through radiation halos. And during that, you have to roll a d6 and then you take off of it your total thrust and if you roll higher than a one i think you some number you roll higher than some number you involuntarily decommission a part of your ship because it got destroyed and so the game is intentionally difficult because it tries to model all of these very complicated factors because going to space is hard it turns out (laughs) the game is like a giant love story to space travel yeah the cards are Utterly gorgeous. They have like diagrams of like the thing you're trying to build, right? It's right on the line of like if we should have included in this episode because it goes somewhat into our future. But I argued with everyone and everyone functionally agreed. Arguing is maybe a strong way to put that. We discussed it. But I kind of put the statement down. It's like, well, yeah, it kind of goes a little bit into the future, but also it like tries to diagram like conceptually how all of these things would work. And it it tries to be very accurate to the science house thing like this would work even if we can't do it today. Yeah, Phil Eklund is a literal rocket scientist and it can show that every step of this is incredibly well thought out and researched and planned out. Yeah, and the High Frontier is a love letter to space travel in essence. So I think the automatic include is that in the original printing, second edition I think actually, the rulebook was quite thick, but the whole back half of it was just, here's the science behind every card. And any game that includes a, here's the science behind it, I think automatically fits into this episode. Fair. Yeah, especially for a lot of the propulsion systems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of them are, you know, things that haven't been built. They've just been dreamed up. Theoretical. Some of them have been built. I mean, solar sails. Yep. I do also like that in the second edition printing, each of the cards had like a diagram of the thing that it was. So like if it was a refinery, here's like a diagram with how it would work. And it almost looks like a blueprint or a schematic for that thing. Does the new edition have that, Joe? Those card diagrams? Because those are pretty great. It does. It does. That's High Frontier. I mean, it, it is a game that has steadily become more approachable. So they're currently on the fourth edition, which is uh, High Frontier for All. And over the course of the four editions, it has steadily become more of a game. I think the initial one was functionally just a simulation. And it is clear Philip Eklund and Ion Games and Sierra Madre Games know what they're making, right? They're not shying away from the thing that they're making, and I think the two beginner options in the game is, is a very strong statement of like, hey, we know what the base game that we're making is. Here's a way that you can get other people to like understand parts of it, as opposed to having to kind of eat the full 50 course <laughs> meal, as it were. 
Someday. And then uh, eventually I'm going to make Jason and Curtis play this, and we're going to go to Pluto, and it's going to be great. Yep. I can't I wait to hear I look forward to watching the... Curtis's brain melt. <laughs> oh, it's going to be so good. I'm so excited. <laughs> All right. That was the legendary Phil Eklund's High Frontier. Yeah. I love games about space travel, that kind of physics, weird movement systems. I'm going to go a little easier with my next choice, which is called Cosmonauts from 2012 Heidelberg Spielverlag. This one's designed by Nadezda Pencrot and Yuri Yemshikov. Yeah, Yemshikov. I'm going to go with that. Works for me. And really, there's a lot of games that use Newton's laws of motion as their basis for movement. When you look at Triplanetary by GDW, that probably is the first big one that uses kind of vector. You uh, blast your fuel and you keep moving that direction until you stop, uh, which use crayons to chart everything. I've got a racing game called Bolide that does that with vector movement, but on a ra- but on a racetrack. Cosmonauts handles basically you're doing a point to point racing to hit all the planets in the solar system, or at least the first five or six. And it really uh, breaks the laws. I mean, the planets rotate way fast, and they move from space to space, and you just have to get near them. It ignores the fact that you do a ton of fuel burn to go into orbit and pick up more fuel around any of these planets. And so the actual physics is kind of broken, especially when you look at High Frontier and you go, yeah, there's not enough fuel. Here, you have a lot of fuel you can kind of burn and do stupid things. In High Frontier, they have like spaces where you slingshot around either the moon or Jupiter yeah. or Mars and get additional birds. they <laughs> very accurate. Oh, yeah, no. Here it uses vector movement. What I mean by that is, in this case, you have a chart on your player board. And whenever you place fuel, you place fuel in one of your hexes around your fake ship. And fuel's never removed. The only way to remove a cube is to place a cube on the opposite side. In which case, that removes that cube and the other cube. The result is how many hexes in each direction you're going to move every turn. So a basic vector movement. And you have to basically slow down enough to go into orbit around a planet. So you can only be like at speed two to go into orbit around a planet. Throw in some events that will do things like make planets move backwards, which is a just a little sus. <laughs> you know... That's how that works. That's to make it a game. Uh, and retrograde, to, yeah. That's to make it a game and keep Ooh. planning out your entire path at once. Wait a minute. That means that everything on that planet is actually traveling backwards in time. I've seen Superman 2. <laughs> that was one. Superman was 1. Yeah, totally. But that's it. It's just a pure vector movement planning game that really goes into that kind of model. I think it's basic enough and the most fun. and. Race game. <laughs> okay. That is Cosmonauts with a K. Next, we get to one of my favorites, which is much less detailed from the science front. This is 2010's Innovation from Carl Chudik and Asmati Games. It is not a detailed simulation of any point of science in any way, but it does do some interesting things in sort of talking about the way that science and technology evolves. As you'll probably guess if you've played any of Carl Chudik's games, you know, Glory to Rome or Matainai or any of the others, these are multi-purpose cards. And basically there are cards in 10 ages of technology from one, which is basically the Stone Age, to 10, which is the sort of post-information age. 
Each card has a number of symbols on it. There are six sort of suits that do different things. And when you take an action on a card, other people who are as strong as you or stronger in that suit basically get to take that action with you. Or there are some that are attack cards where people who are less strong than you in a given suit have to do some things that are bad for them and good for you. What makes it even vaguely scientific is the way that the play of the cards, while very abstract, does kind of tell a story. For instance, in the first couple ages of the game, one of the suits is castles. When you build a lot of castles, you get very powerful because, you know, you have a lot of military power, you can impose on people, you can take their stuff. Then in age four, the gunpowder card will show up at some point. And as soon as somebody plays that, castles suddenly become a liability. Well, it's real bad. Yeah. And it's just, I really like the way that in a, a very minimalist card game, it still sort of shows how revolutionary that technology was. There are other suits that only show up in the last couple ages of the game. There's all thing with light bulbs, which is discovery, which there are a lot of cards with them that will generate, you know, each suit has a different purpose, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It can be a very interesting tactical game with two players. It is kind of a crazed chaos fest with four but it plays in like 45 minutes. It's quick. It's fun. There are a number of expansions to it, which I think are just more. I don't think they make the game better. They add new mechanics and different symbols and other things you can do. I don't think the game needs that. The base game is very tightly put together, and I quite like it. Each of the colors mm -hmm. have a theme, right? And blue is kind of the color of technology. One of the things I like about the game quite a lot is that all of the blue cards are really about, like, getting card advantage or, like, researching a higher level tech kind of randomly. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you discover? Yep. What does your research lead to? Which I think does give kind of a super, super abstract kind of, like, we do some research and we learn something. We don't know what we're going to learn, but it's going to be something new. Mm -hmm. It'll be cool. Yeah. And then uh, as you get to the later stages of the game, especially in round 10, there are a lot of sort of future technologies which will do incredibly random stuff that may just end the game and change the victory conditions all of a sudden. By the way, uh, if anybody has fewer than three leaves in play, the game ends right now and whoever has the most leaves wins. Yep. Which is not how the regular game ends. So uh, You've had mm -hmm. a uh, e ecological disaster. Right. So it's abstract, it's a little chaotic, it's a lot of fun, it's one of my favorites. And it's at least vaguely sciencey. I think my other favorite one is the if there are like X number of like computer symbols, you have the robot uprising and mm -hmm. oh, yeah. you remove all of the high level cards from play and you basically go back to the beginning of the game, but all you're left with are the remains of like everything that you left behind in each of the tech decks. Right, exactly. And so it's like you've already discovered like supercomputers, but now you're back to like banging rocks together. It's pretty great. Yeah. Anyway, that is innovation, my favorite of Kalchenik's games. So CO2 is the first probably like ecologically conscious game that I've ever played, which is kind of ironic because board games are just not very eco-friendly, y'all. <laughs> but this one is all about air pollution, and it was released in 2012 by geochicks.it which is just their company name. It's real weird. Mm -hmm. And was uh, designed by Vito Lacerda. 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 Mm -hmm. He's done a ton of stuff. Oh, yeah. But CO2 is a worker 
placement-ish game. Like, it's kind of a hard game to describe because, like, on your turn, you can propose a project for a new green energy facility. You can build a already proposed project, even if it wasn't proposed by you. Or you can do research or get scientists or something like that. And then as you are researching these different types of facilities, you unlock like better versions of them. You can get more points or make them more powerful. But it also has like ecological summits. So at certain points in the game, you can send all of your scientists to go talk about the ecological disasters that will befall humankind and do nothing about them. And don't worry, they have replicated all the various places that those summits take place. France, Tokyo, what was the most recent one? I don't even remember anymore. But like, they've been doing these kind of conferences for years, and it hasn't really helped. Yeah, I wonder if there is like a, an effect in the game that you go and you have this conference, and you do a lot of science, and you prove the way certain things are happening. And then you go back home to your government and they're just like, nah, seems like a lot of work. Yeah. I do like that the currency in the game is carbon emission. Offsets? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> so, you know, that's fun. But what's really interesting, and I had not realized this, is I actually got the original version of this game. Apparently, in researching it, though, they have produced a second edition, which, from everything I could find, has fixed some of the more weird rules. But that one's CO2 Second Chance, so I might have to check that one out. Oh, they just call it CO2 2? <laughs> CO2 Squared. But the game is very pretty. Like, the graphic design on the game is very nicely done. It's kind of a weird game. I can't recommend it. It's not the most fun to play, even from like a point salad worker placement. It is rather dry. Yeah. It just, from what we were going through, it just seemed like it was just a step or two more complicated than it needed to be. Mm -hmm. But maybe the new edition addresses that. I, I don't know. We were playing with the original rule set or looking at the original rule set. Yeah. Given the designer, nope, that's what you get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not a huge fan of his designs. I do know a bunch of people that are into that, and oh, it's a decent game for people that like that crap. <laughs> wow. How do you really feel, Frank? Yeah, he's the one that did uh, Lisboa, isn't it? Which is like this oh, God. enormous <laughs> Euro complexity nightmare. Yeah. All right, CO2. All right, so we'll go from talking about one particular molecule to talking about a whole bunch of different molecules. How about that for a segue? There, ah. it. Nailed it. So we'll be talking about Compounded from 2013 from Dice Hate Me, designed by Daryl Lauder. In Compounded, you are playing lab managers trying to complete the most compounds before all the other lab managers do it, basically. You're trying to accumulate uh, 50 atomic points. Essentially in front of you, there's a 4x4 field of 16 compounds called the research field where you're trying to assign elements that you're collecting to those molecules to earn the points that are on the cards, essentially. The game's broken up into four different phases. The discovery phase, where you're drawing random elements out of a bag. They represent them by little crystals of different colors. They have different rarities, right? So like, I think the most common one is hydrogen, and the least common one is sulfur, mm -hmm. for example. Then you can do this study phase, where you take turns claiming the compounds themselves. So each player will start with a single claim token, 
You can earn more as you increase your experiment track, and you'll place them on the actual compounds and say, hey, this is the one I'm going to be getting points for completing. You can complete ones you don't have your actual claim token on as like a temporary claim, but you run the risk of someone completing it before you do and taking it away from you. Then the research phase, where you place the elements onto the different compounds. So you can place a certain amount based off that experiment track, however far along you've gone in the research track. And then lastly, the lab phase, which is where you complete the actual compounds themselves, get the points and get whatever rewards are there and replace them with new cards. Then things blow up. And then things potentially blow up. Yeah, as you're going through the deck, there's five different lab fire cards distributed throughout that deck. And when you draw that, every molecule that has a little fire icon on the bottom of it will get a little red cube. If there are no more empty fire spaces on those molecules, they blow up. And if there's any elements on it, whoever claimed that molecule, or if no one's claimed it, it's the lead player, a lead scientist, I think assigns whatever those elements are to other elements that are nearby. <laughs> so they explode their elements everywhere. Yeah, and each player has their own fire extinguisher that they can build with the appropriate molecules to <laughs> yes. stop something from catching hmm. on fire. Yes. I do like the idea of scientists in their lab like, okay, first thing we have to do is create the... Oh God, what is the element that goes into the fire extinguishers? Gah. Is it CO2? CO2? It Did might be. an even better segue? Uh, <laughs> That's but like, I like the idea of scientists having to set up their labs. It's like, okay, first thing we got to do is fill up our fire extinguishers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, what kind of shitty labs do we work at? Yeah, just everybody, here's a jar of oxygen and a jar of carbon. <laughs> Go make the fire extinguisher. The world's <laughs> tiniest fire extinguisher. Yes, exactly. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, that's kind of the game, like where the game, I think, is really directed is during the discovery phase, after you've collected your elements and before you put them into the open spaces that you have, because you only have a certain amount of slots you can hold them with, you can have any sort of negotiating and trading with other players. So you can trade elements, you can trade equipment, because there's lab equipment you get, you can trade favors, and you can most specifically trade lies with each other and pretend you're going to do something and not actually do it. Yeah, this one was interesting. It's got a bunch of interesting pieces going on. I'm not sure how enjoyable it would actually be as a game, but it's certainly pretty. Yeah, I think it would probably depend on who you're playing with. Like, I do like that there is some strategy into which molecules you complete, because, like, they might advance your experiment tracks, and I think one of the win conditions is completing three of the four experiment tracks. So there might be some strategy around, hey, I'm going to focus on specific things so they can ramp those tracks up as quickly as possible. It looks like in the advanced version of the game, there's more complex molecules that multiple people can claim and start working on. So that's kind of like closer to that Viva Java feeling that you were talking yeah. about. And then, of course, like any game with the score track that's a freaking periodic table. I mean, that, <laughs> that's pretty hilarious. That's science right there. Science! <laughs> I also like there are some larger compounds that you can make, and the backs of them are composition notebooks, which <laughs> yes, <laughs> excellent theming choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, the graphic design on it is great. We didn't actually play through a full game. I think I would kind of like to try that at some point. Yeah. Yeah, I think it'd be a nice little distraction. Like maybe a, a one of the conventions we go to or something. That'd be fun. To, I'd certainly give it a shot. Even yeah. though I will admit, when we first saw it, like I, I had flashbacks to all the chemistry classes I had to take in college. <laughs> and I was just like, oh no, I have to remember how these work again. No. Jason tried to dive out the window. We <laughs> slammed it shut. 
Yeah, I had to breathe into a paper bag for a little while, but I'm okay now. <laughs> it's all right. And to that end, the molecules all look accurate, even to the point of like the positioning. So they show the covalent and Vanderwall forces that bind the molecules together. So that was also fun. I mean, they probably need a course in like lab safety instruction. <laughs> oh. But other than that, the game looks like it mostly got the chemistry correct. So. In addition to the flammable elements, there are also corrosive elements. There's a wide variety of other things that will do unpleasant things. So you have to choose carefully what you're going to work on. I think my only suggestion to make this an even better graphically designed game is to have all of that information displayed into the, like, I forget the names of them, but those four squared chemical labels. Oh, yeah, the material safety data. Yeah, yeah. No, Brian. Mike was clearly referring to the NFPA hazard diamond. All right. So that was compounded. So all of these, like, being scientifically accurate and, like, being concerned with details. Let's leave that all behind and journey deep into the ocean in a sphere of aqua. So I'm talking about Aquasphere by Stefan Feld, published by Hall Games. In an Aquasphere, it's a worker placement game, and functionally, you are programming robots to do tasks for you. And those tasks are like improving your lab or sending out submarines to make it so that you can collect more research points in the future or collecting crystals or getting rid of those pesky octopus that are just stuck to every available surface of your aquasphere. The game is functionally a point salad game. You take actions and those actions get you research points and research points are how you win the game. I think one of the cooler mechanics in my mind is that you're all sharing the same board, and every round, in essence, a bunch of resources get kind of scattered across the board, like octopi that you need to go remove from the aquaspheres, and crystals that you can research, and different kinds of technologies that upgrade you, and different hab upgrades, which lets you store more of different kinds of resources. And then you go kind of in player order around the table, battling for which of these resources you get. It's very Euro as a game. It's a lot about long-term planning and short-term gains versus long-term gains like most Euros are. The programming system is pretty cute, right? So one action you can take is you can kind of move your head scientist along a simplified track every time you have a choice between functionally two different programming options. Like, oh, I want to remove Octopi or I want to make upgrades, or I want to expand my research station, or I want to deploy a submarine. Whoever passes first will go first the next round, but there's always like lots of stuff for you to do. So it's an interesting tension between, hey, do I pass and go really early next round because I really need to do something that people are blocking me from doing? Or do I want to kind of like fully juice this round and get all the points I can from this round before going into next round? even if that means I'll be a little later in the turn order. Yeah, I remember playing this. This was, I think, one of the first kind of heavy Euros I had played. And I remember enjoying it, but it was one of those games that I kind of had to be in the right mood for because there's a lot going on. I recall the board being very cramped. It's not a particularly big board, and there's a lot of little stuff going on on there. There is a lot of pieces on that board. <laughs> but yeah. It's a fun game. I still have my copy. I will probably play it again someday, he said. 
It's okay, Brian, in our infinite amounts of free time. Yes, exactly that. So it plays Max 4. It has a very good system every round, right? The stuff that kind of gets scattered everywhere is based on the central dial, and there's a different central dial for every number of players. Mm -hmm. And so it does a very good job of playing two, three, or four players very effectively. Yeah, I mean, Stefan Feld is, if nothing else, good at building board game systems. Yep. Oh, yeah. And even I would play this, so. Mm -hmm. And my my anti-Euro heresy. That was Aquasphere. And that was also the conclusion of part one of our science episode. Join us again next month when you'll hear us talk about more science games. We'll go back into space. We'll go back into genes. And we'll generally look at more things that are scientific and decide whether we like them and how scientifically accurate they are and whether there's any causal relationship between those two things. We'll talk to you then. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentOfBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. Yeah, I think that concept was coined from people playing innovation. You know, the whole idea that one player don't know what to do. A pandemic. Sorry. That's what I get for looking at one page.